for participating with us in that. I'd love for you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn over to the book of 1 Samuel. I know some of you are just kind of joining us today for the first time. We're really glad to have you with us. Uh, hopefully you'll feel welcome by the time you leave today. But we've been in the midst of a series that we've entitled Journey to the Throne. The book of 1 Samuel tells us about the journey of the people of God and of Saul and of David to their thrones. In other words, they're in We've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, seeing what God can teach us about our own journey to God's throne, to His throne. You know, and part of that journey means that we're going to have to ask ourselves some important questions. You know, life is full of questions, isn't it? Some of them aren't so important, like what snack am I going to have during halftime today during the Patriots game? Some of that might depend whether they're winning or losing. But, you know, but there are other questions. First of all, you guys awake? All right, wake up just a little bit, you know. That's supposed to be somewhat funny, you know, and I didn't even get a ripple, not, a, you know, not, not even a strange stare, you know, so you've got to draw in just a little bit here. But, I mean, life is full of all kinds of questions, right? What college am I going to go to? When should I get married? How many kids should we have? Should I take this job or not? Should we buy this house or not? Am I healthy enough? Do I have enough money for retirement? And the list just kind of goes on and on, right? You know? And you follow the green line, and you'll be fine. You know, everybody, people are looking to give answers. But, you know, the Bible itself actually presents us with what I would call the question of a lifetime. Now, I might state it in several different ways, but it presents us with the question of a lifetime. The book of Acts puts it this way. When the people heard the Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the question is, well, what must we do? You know, what, what must we do? in response to what God has done in Christ. The Philippian jailer put it this way, so what, 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 what must I do to be saved? The rich young ruler put it this way, how do, what must I do to have eternal life? Today's text, in chapter 6, in 1 Samuel, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 4, 5, 6, and 7, presents the question this way. Verse 20 of chapter 6. If you're using one of our few Bibles, you'll find this our, our passages today is on 229, 230, and 231, all right? The men of Beth Shemesh, this little village that the Ark of God comes back into, I'm going to tell you that story in just a minute. They ask the question this way, who is able to stand in the presence of this holy Lord God? Today's sermon, I want to try to answer that question. Who can and who cannot stand in the presence of this holy God. I think our text today illustrates who can't and who can stand in God's presence. But as always, we try to be faithful to the text. So let me just kind of tell you the events that are unfolding here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. Now every week during my column in our e-letter, I'm going to tell you what passages we're going to be in. It's really great if you can read before you come because it'll just kind of make it all that much more meaningful for you. If you don't get our e-letter, you can sign up for it there on the connection card or just go to our website. We'll put you on the list. But let me just unfold what's going on here. Now, we've already seen that Samuel has been born as a response to a prayer of Hannah, his mother, and that he is chosen to be the next great prophet and judge who's going to follow Eli. Eli's downfall, 
with that of his children, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, has already been prophesied twice in chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 4, that prophecy comes to pass. The Philistines once again come up. The Philistines were a, were a seafaring people who had taken over the coastal plain of Palestine. So if, you, if, you know, if you're looking at the Mediterranean seas over here and Jerusalem's here, they had kind of taken over this whole area, and actually some of their cities were within 20 miles, 10 to, 10 to 20 miles of some of the villages of Israel. They had put in so much pressure on the Israelites, they forced the tribe of Dan to abandon their land in the middle. They had been given to them as God's promise. They had had the force to abandon it in the middle of the nation and move to the very northern extremes. The Philistines were, were sucking the life out of the Israelites in this south, south, southwest portion of Israel. They come up again. The Israelites go out to resist them. They lose. Go out to battle, 4,000 guys die. They come back into the camp and they say, okay, what's wrong with our strategy? Why, why, did, why did God let this happen? And So you know what? The solution is let's bring God down here. So they, they send back the Shiloh and they get the ark. And Eli's two sons, whose sons who were serving as priests, Phineas and, um, Phineas and Hophni, um, they bring the, the uh, ark down. And when it enters into the camp, the people all roar with excitement. There's no way we can lose now because God's in the camp. we got God on our side. They go out to battle the next day, they lose. Get slaughtered. Not only that, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines capture it, take it back to their territory with them. There's a guy there who escapes the battle, so he's fought for a part of the day. They've lost. Then he engages in a 20-mile run back to Shiloh, which is almost all uphill from where the battle took place. He's running uphill. He runs back to Shiloh, which is where Eli is. And he communicates the results. The Israelites have lost. Eli's two sons have been killed, as had been prophesied, and the Ark of the Covenant has been lost. Now, Eli is old. He's 98, I think the text tells us. He's been ruler over Israel as a judge for 40 years. There's almost all the city gates had, a, had like a, a seat kind of built into them, and he's, he's kind of sitting on this leadership seat where all the business would take place. It's a, just a big piece of stone kind of thing. He's, he's overweight from all the extra offerings that his sons were stealing from the Israelite worshipers that we read about in chapter 2. He's heavy. He hears this news. He, he like faints, passes out, has a heart attack. It doesn't tell us, but he falls off of his chair, and he's so heavy he breaks his neck and he dies. Now, if the picture couldn't get any more grim, his daughter-in-law goes into labor pains and gives birth to Eli's grandson. And as she's giving birth to him, she dies. But her final words is, I want his name to be called Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. Feel uplifted yet? Yeah, I'm glad I came to church today, you know. The Philistines get the ark. This is chapter 5 and 6. They get the ark. You know, they think, you know what, hey, this is great. We've got, we've, our chief god is Dagon, right? I mean, he, he's, he's the top of the pantheon. They were polytheistic, meaning they believed in a lot of gods. Their chief god, the ruling god, the president of their god council was a god called Dagon, right? And so they bring the ark back and they say, you know what, this is the Israelite chief god. We've got our chief. We'll just put him in. We'll have two chief gods. This will be great. We'll have two gods. We'll be covered on all sides. 
So they bring the ark in and they put it in the temple of Dagon in, in a place called Ashdod, one of the major cities of the Philistines area, and one of the leading cities. And, and the next morning they wake up and the idol that represents Dagon is lying face down in the temple before the ark. Thinking, geez, you know, maybe it was a little, just a micro earthquake or whatever fell off, you know, the wind blew really. So they plock him back up on, on his stand. Come back the next morning early. Dagon's, again, on his face. This time his head is broken off and also all of his arms. So it's just his torso left. And they're like, eh, this is not so good. And on top of that, not only does God, so not only is God bringing kind of making the, the, the God of the Philistines bow down to him, but on top of that, he begins to bring judgment on the Philistines. They developed this lovely thing that they refer to as tumors. So everybody in the area is inflicted with these tumors. And people are dying right and left. So the Philistines do the best, next, they do the best thing that they can do. So you know what? Let's just give this to somebody else. So they just pack it up and they shift it off to another one of their cities. You know? So we don't want this, so it's like let's toss the hot potato. So it goes to another city, same thing happens. They're, they start developing these tumors. So then they start shipping it off to, to another of their cities, and somewhere along the line they say, you know what, we have to figure out how to get rid of this thing. And that's chapter 6. So they, they gather together, they get all of their, their wise men together, and the wise men said, you know what you've got to do is you've got to send this thing back to Israel. But you can't send it back empty-handed, because if, God, if the God of the Israelites is really doing this, you've got to send back an offering of some kind. So they, they decide, you know what, what can we get them then? You know, this is a Good Christmas gift question, right? What should, you know what? They make, they make golden representations of the tumors. Now, how would you like that? Say, hey, I got a gift for you. I, got, I made you a copy of my tumor. <laughs> you know? Not only that, they made pictures of the mice. They made copies of the mice. We get the idea that the, they had been infested with mice and God had used that and brought like the bubonic plague on them. Not a pretty picture, right? And so... It's all in God's divine control in the midst of all of that. So they, they, they make this offering that they're going to send back, and the instructions are very specific. Get two cows who've never before been in the yoke, who've recently had calves, build a brand new cart that's never been used before, yoke them to it, put the ark along with the five golden tumors, the five golden mice, which represent the five cities and the five leaders of those cities, put them in the cart, send it down the road. Now, if God's not involved, if the God of the Hebrews is not involved with this, these cows are going to want to turn back and go back to their calves who are looking to nurse. So then if that happens, we'll know that this is just a coincidence. If not, if we, if we send these calves without a with these cows without a driver down the road and they just keep going and they march right into, into Israel's ter territory, we'll know that it was the God of the Hebrews who was doing this to us. And so that's what they do in chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, it arrives in a little village called Beth Shemesh. Just a li little wide spot in the road, not too far from Jerusalem, you know, within 10 or 15 miles, that area, not too far from Shiloh. They arrive there. They are ecstatic to see the glory of God back. So they, they get the ark, and they put it on a big rock that's on the top of a bluff, and they put the, the golden tumors and the mice with it, whatever, and they take the cart, and they break it all apart, and they make a big fire out of it, and then they offer up as a sacrifice of thanks the two cows that drew it in. And yet somewhere in the midst of this, 
And we get the impression it's a Levite city, which means that they were qualified. They were from the priestly family, so they could be around the ark. That these guys decide, you know what? Yeah, let's just take a peek inside. We'd like to see what's in there. And 70 of them did that, and they all died. And that brings us to our question. Who can really stand before the Lord? Said, Where are we going to send the ark? Because we don't want it with us. We, we don't want God that close to us. We want to send him away. So they send it to a little village at the end of chapter 6 called um, Kiriath-Jirian. You know, why can't they just have easy names like Worcester and Gloucester and stuff like that? They always got these hard-to-pronounce names that are in here. But they, they send it to this little village to a house of Abinadab, and it stays there for 20 years under the care of one of his sons by the name of, name of Eleazar. In chapter 7, we see really Samuel emerge into his full-blown judgeship. He's, Eli is now dead, and Samuel steps into that role. And he calls the people together. He, you know, he, he, he senses among the people that there is a time when they're really ready to get right with God. And so he calls them to a place called Mitzpah. A little, again, just a, a town on the main road going north-south. And, and they come together, and he says, listen, if you really want to walk with God, you've got to get rid of your worldly ways. You've got to get rid of the, the worship of Baal and the Asherah, which were the Canaanite practices of the ways. In other words, they were, they were kind of adopting the ways of the world around them. But at the same time, they were trying to still be kind of Jewish, be God's people. And they were trying to mix. He says, you know, you can't do that. You can't be divided. You've got to get rid of one and be faithful to the other. If you're going to do that, God's going God's to be faithful to you. And they come together at Mitzvah. They say, that's what we're going to do. They actually follow through. They tear down all the altars to Baal. They get rid of the Asherah poles. They, they do all that stuff. And they, and God, as they're gathered together at Mitzvah to consecrate their repentance and their reformation, the Philistines take it as though that they're gathering for battle. So they show up with all, all in full-blown armor, ready to take them on. And God steps in. It's really interesting that the Canaanites thought of Baal as being the god of thunder. And God uses thunder and lightning to disperse the enemy and bring total victory to the people. And for 20 years, they had victory. So there's some good stuff in there. You just read. Now, there's some wonderful points I can make from this text. You know, one of first of all, is, you know, for good or for bad, God's word never fails. He made a prophecy about Eli and his sons. It came to pass. And that prophecy, you're going to see it continue to follow up. We can rely on God's word, whether it's about blessings or whether it's about cursings, we can rely on God's word. Another word for us, I think, that steps out for this, and the, uh, but I'm not going to emphasize, sometimes it looks like God's losing, but God's never losing. Do you know what I mean? For, for, for the Israelites to lose meant that the Philistines' God had defeated their God. And as a part of the spoils of that victory, they took the ark back to the temple of Dagon, right? But even though God is in enemy hands, quote-unquote, God's still in charge because the God is falling down to them. Sometimes it looks in our own lives, it looks in our own world, especially in a day when we're praying for the persecuted church, it looks like we're losing. The book of Revelation is gonna tell, tells us it looks like we're going to be really losing. But a time's going to come when we're going to see that God really never loses, he's always in charge. And that's a tremendous word for us to remember today. 
I think the whole thing about the golden tumors and the golden mites is just a word to us that if we're really going to return to God, there's going to be a cost involved. And, and, and I think there's a struggle for us sometimes that we're, we, we really don't want the cost that goes with it. But how about this question of the day? Who really can stand before a holy God? And I've got three categories that can't and one category that can. And I think it all comes right out of our text. It's not like this is why it was, it was given to us or what it's trying to say, but this is, illustrates the truths that underlie it. One of the, you know, when it comes to standing before a holy God, no other, no other God can stand before God because there really is no other God. You know, that's the whole message of chapter 4 and 5, right? The ark gets captured, they take it, they put it in the temple of their most powerful God, and that God, that idol, is forced to go prone before God in worship. Signify that there's nothing that can stand before the true God, the only God, the real God. Now, I don't know, I mean, in our world that you and I live in, we don't really have a choice between, you know, we really don't struggle with different gods, if you will, per se. Maybe we do. I don't know. But in some, you know, countries where, you know, they're, they're, that's, that's chief. You know, whether you're going to be, follow Allah or other kinds of gods, all those challenges are there for, for those people. We have to choose. And, and it's clear to us whether that, that, you know, in some places of the world, people are still picking between ancestors and worshiping their ancestors or or choosing Allah or Buddha or some other kinds of things. And there's all those kinds of cho- choices. Probably for most of us in the Christian church, we're kind of insulated from a lot of that. That's not, I mean, I don't know if, whether you woke, have woken up recently and say, well, you know, one of them, am I going to worship my ancestors today or am I going to worship the God of the Bible? I, I don't, probably that's not a struggle that most of you have had. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with whether or not we're going to have other gods and to recognize that those other gods really can't stand before the true God. You see, anything that we organize our lives around is a God to us. What gives our life priorities is a God to us. And and any other definition of what really matters most in life, any definition other than the God that we see in the Scriptures is a God that's eventually going to fail. It's not going to sustain you in the long run. And, you know, I mentioned this in the, in the, in the, in the first service that, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not necessarily a reflective person by trait. You know, it's just not, doesn't come instinctive to me or whatever. Every once in a while I can have moments of insight, that kind of stuff. But, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And sometimes that can happen, you know, in my own life. But, but you know, as, as I think about the progression that I've experienced, you know, is that, we, we, we've, we've migrated. We, you know, certainly this is, could be one of those moments where I'm kind of railing against things like money and success and fame and all that kind of stuff. And, and all that's very appropriate. Because a lot of us, we can, we can build our entire lives around some of that stuff. But, you know, I tell you, one of the things that we worship today more than anything else, I think, as a nation, is we just, we, we worship a, a spirit of independence. I want to be able to decide for myself what's right and wrong, and I don't want anybody else to have the right to question that's, that's where we are. That's where we are. And that's not just the problem outside the church. That's the problem inside the church. And it, it's a difficult thing. But we need to be careful that 
and recognize there's no other, when, it, when, it, when a push comes to shove, when we're at the moment of judgment, however you want to see it, the end of history, seven, when we draw in that final breath of life, however you want to define it, when you come to that moment, no other God besides the true God is going to be able to save us. It's interesting, too, that in addition to the fact that no other God, that the ungodly can't stand before the holy God. Think about, think about the experience of the Philistines, right? They won. You know, they won. They're in charge. The Israelites are oppressed. And God is just, just inflicting them with these tumors. And there's all these mice running around in their villages that were never there before. Not even the ungodly. You know, and I got to tell you, what strikes me, now, now think about the dynamic here, right? The, the, the Philistines have fought against the people of God. And the fact that they won means that their God was victorious over the Israelites' God, right? Now they bring that God into their camp. So we're just going to assimilate. We're going to make him a part of us. And yet he's bringing judgment on them, right? He, he, he's exercising his power among them. And they don't ask the question of how do we follow this God. They ask the question, how do I get rid of this God? See, when, when we make the choice to send God away rather than to follow him, we're in a position where we cannot stand before God. You know, they, they've got every reason to say, you know what, we should, the Hebrews got something here. Let's go ask them how they follow. And yet, at the end of the day, they don't want to have anything to do with it. And they want to send them away. Those who reject God, don't want God too close, who are ungodly, you know, that, that Romans chapter 1 has just a, 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 a clear picture. I mean, that, that Romans 1 teaches, you know, that, that God made himself evident even in creation. And there was ways along the line where his men was rejecting that, that, that the, the testimony of that creation. God said he got to a place, you know, in, in chapter 20, verse 28 of that first chapter, he says, you know, and God just gave them over to the depraved mind. It's, it's, like, it's like they kept trying to run out away from God, and God had put up these riverbanks, these floodgates that kind of kept them in. And at some point he says, you know what, I, I, I'm just going to take my hands off. And, and there's a list of 21 vices that emerge. Murder, strife, and, you know, all these guys, just a wonderful list. Lying, and oh, it's, it's, just, it's just an incredible list. And, and, and when we reject God and send him away, there's no way that we can stand before him. These people got to a place where they called truth a lie and they called a lie the truth. And they were at a place where they were really incapable of being able to discern what was ethically right. Their ability to make ethical decisions was fundamentally compromised. See, think about what happened. They, they actually got to a place where they equated sexual promiscuity with worship. That's pretty twisted. They got to a place where they could celebrate murder as a sport and other things like that. It's, it's amazing where they got in those journeys. No other gods can stand before the Holy One. The ungodly, those who want to send God away can't. Neither can those with divided allegiances. The whole story of chapter 4 is, here you got the people of God, and we know from chapter 7, 
Okay, so you're going to put piece these two together. Here they are. They're, they're out. They're ready to take on the Philistines. They lose. And they say, oh, what's up? I mean, and, and so their conviction is, you know what? There's, there's got to be a barrier somewhere between us and God. And in chapter 7, we know what that barrier is. They're not only trying to worship God, they're also trying to do life the world's way. They've got, they've got altars to Baal. They've got these, the Asherah. These are both Canaanite deities, you know, the gods that the Canaanites had made up. They were the male and female gods of, of fertility and et cetera. And, and so they're doing all of that along with trying to worship God. So they're divided between the two. And their solution to their lack of faithfulness was simply to bring the ark in. We don't really want to become faithful. We don't want to repent. What we want to do is just box God into a corner where God has to do for us what we want him to do for us. And they discover in the second battle that God just doesn't work that way. And if we're going to try to stand before God with divided allegiances, that we're going to try to find some replacement for faithfulness, we're going to discover we're not going to be able to stand before. I don't care how much you give. I don't know how much you care, how much you do, or anything else. If you're from the inside out, from your heart, you're not faithful to God. You're not able to stand before God. And then we come to chapter 7. Those who can stand before God are those who have truly returned to him. Those who have repented and they've reformed. They've made a commitment to change, and they've confessed it to God, and they've acted on that change, and they're able to stand. That's what happens in Mitzpah in chapter 7. Samuel calls them together, and, 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 you know, and he says, listen, if you really want to follow, follow along with me. Let me read verse 3 and following from chapter 7. Samuel told them, and now he's acting as a judge, right? He's, you know, and, and he and so he's exercising leadership. He says, if you are going to return to the Lord with all your heart, you've got to get rid of the foreign gods. You've got to get rid of the Baal and the Ashtoreths that are among you and dedicate yourselves to the Lord and worship him only. Then, then he will rescue. Then you'll be able to stand in his presence. And he'll rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They actually not only repented, but they reformed. They changed. And as a result of that, they worshiped only God. And so they gathered all together at Mitzpah, and I'll pray to the Lord on your behalf. And when they gathered, they drew water, and they poured it out in the Lord's presence, a symbolizing of their, that's a, a prayer request for God to cleanse them of their sin, if you will. And they fasted that day, and, they, and, they, they, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And, and Samuel began to lead the Israelites at Mitzpah as their judge. And when the Philistines heard it, they gathered at Mitzpah, and their rulers marched up, and when the Israelites heard about it, they cried out to God. They were afraid of the Philistines, and they said, Samuel, don't stop crying out for us. And he offered up an offering, and we see afterwards that, that in, in verse 7, as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, as the Philistines drew near to fight, the, the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines in that day, that day and threw them into such confusion that they fled before Israel. God delivered them. I mean, they came back to God with a whole heart. And God stepped in, and they were able to stand in God's presence, and they had victory. You know, there's a lot of lessons for us to be learned in all of this. You know, the, the way that you and I can answer the question, you know, if, if somebody, who are you to stand in the presence of God? We have an answer. I'm the one who 
I can stand in the presence of God because I have returned to him with a whole heart. I've repented of my sin. I've placed my faith in God, and my life has been changed because of that. Those are the ones who can stand in the presence of God. It's a powerful word. It's a place that can give us great confidence. So I don't think the question so much for most of us today is how do I stand in God's presence? It's really the question of do I really want to stand in the presence of God? I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer it for myself. Let's pray together. Father, there are ways we come to church to be encouraged. The world outside is not always a nice place to us. We have a lot of issues in our lives, a lot of challenges in our relationships and etc. And yet, Father, there's probably no greater position of strength for us to be in and confronting all of that to know that we can truly stand in your presence. Today, tomorrow, for all eternity, that there's actually no there's, there's no barriers and no hindrances between us. God, for some of us today, there are those challenges. We hold to a God other than you. We have things in our lives that are more important to us than you are. Father, there's ways in which we're looking to send you away because we don't like the sense of conviction or change or cost that comes from walking with you. Father, others of us are I really kind of struggle. We, we, we'd like to kind of have our cake and eat it too. We, we want to be able to be called a Christian, but somehow, and just be able to do some things that qualify us to be in your presence, but somehow be able to keep doing things like we always have. God, we look for a substitute for faithfulness, and it's not just there. It's just not there. But God, we stand today with an invitation before us to be able to stand in your presence as a people who have returned, as a person who has returned with a whole heart to you and is ready to be changed by our faith in Jesus Christ. God, let, that name, let the name of those folks be called legion in this place. God, now that we know how to, give us the desire to be the kind of people who can stand in your presence. We pray it in Jesus' name.